This episode is brought to you by Paycor, the HR and payroll software made for leaders. It's never been harder to recruit, hire, and engage workers. That's why HR leaders and frontline managers depend on Paycor for all things people management, from onboarding and performance reviews to compensation and benefits. Learn more at paycor.com slash leaders. That's P-A-Y-C-O-R dot com slash leaders. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, I think we had this exact same conversation a year ago, but I want to offer a blanket apology to everyone that was forced to watch the Patriots-Jets game oh, um, on yes. Sunday. Yeah. Uh, well, I apologize to anyone who watches Zach Wilson do anything, the Jets quarterback. Zach Wilson, uh, your quarterback. My <laughs> quarterback uh, allegedly slapped your cornerback he did. in there's, the balls. There's video of it. I mean, it's not allegedly. Um, we can see the evidence. It's like Donald Trump in his yeah, classified documents. Not covered in glory. No. That game. I was, I was luckily <laughs> yeah. on a plane, so it was one of those really small TVs. I was coming back from a wedding in Wisconsin. Yeah, I Iowa, just... Iowa uh, crew. I'm avoiding the Jets. Uh, I, I can't... I don't have the stomach for it. I think that's right. I think that's right. Well, we got a lot of news today to distract us from terrible sports franchises. We are going to cover the foreign policy implications of the indictment of Senator Bob Menendez, Democrat from New Jersey, the latest from Russia and Ukraine, uh, a correction, an important one from the New York Times about Ron DeSantis and his work at Guantanamo Bay Prison, uh, an update on the diplomatic row between Canada and India. I love saying row. It feels very British. Yeah. Uh, we're going to talk about debatably the worst vetting mistake of all time in politics. Uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, did an interview with Fox News. We'll talk about sanctions and migration. Uh, quick update on Niger. Some news about uh, undiplomatic ambassadors. And then, Ben, you did today's interview. What are we going to hear about? Yeah, so I talked to Alicia Vartanian, who's uh, the International Crisis Group Senior Analyst for the region that includes Armenia and Azerbaijan. Uh, so we talked about the situation there where you have essentially the 150,000 uh, know, ethnic Armenians who've been living in this enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh, that they've been you know, starved for months and then essentially militarily defeated and are being driven from their homes as we speak. So there's like essentially a mass ethnic cleansing of these people moving uh, into Armenia. And so we talked about how that happened, why that happened, what's going to happen next, what the United States and the national community can do, cement the powers there um, as we speak. And really, you know, get some important texture from the ground too of what it feels like, what it, what life is like for these people that, you know, are on this unimaginable exile journey um, uh, out of their homeland forever. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I think the main takeaway, Tommy, for me is like this is pretty well done, you know, yeah. Yeah. Um, and and it just happened in like a week. And, happened so fast. And there was a slow motion buildup, and people will yes. say they've been warning about this all year, and they have. So. I don't want to diminish that, but that this end end play happened in a week. Yeah, no, I mean, look, you and I were just talking before we started recording. I mean, we covered this a week or two ago 
Uh, and there was what seemed like a sliver of good news because the only road from Armenia into Nagorno-Karabakh had been opened up by Azerbaijan. People thought maybe to get aid in, but it turns out the Azerbaijanis just rolled in their troops yeah. and used this as a pretext to invade. And, you know, this really, I mean, there have been on and off wars in Nagorno-Karabakh for decades, yeah. but, um, you know, it seems like the die was cast and was it 2020 when Azerbaijan took back a lot of territory? Yeah, I think what we learned from that is Azerbaijan is just much, much more stronger militarily than Armenia for a, a lot of reasons, including a, a military buildup funded by oil. But also what's happened this time is the Russian peacekeepers went there to break it up. You know, um, So it's also a story about you know, r- diminishing Russian influence in that part of the world. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm sure the Armenians are furious that these Russian peacekeepers yeah. just did nothing. Nothing. Nothing yeah. at all. Well, uh, that's a very important story, and I'm glad you covered it in depth in the interview. Uh, ben, so today is Tuesday the 26th. Tomorrow the 27th is the second Republican presidential debate. I'm sure it'll be a blast just like the last one, Donald Trump is not a part of it. If you want to watch uh, with us in the Crooked Media Discord for lots of fun live reactions, go to crooked.com slash friends. Ben, I'm gonna go up to the debate to the Reagan Library and cover it in person. And I was laying in bed last night and it occurred to me that there's a non-zero chance that I get my ass kicked by some right-wing blogger. Are you gonna pay tribute to the Gipper while you're up there? Uh, I was thinking about that. Yeah, a little homage. Maybe that will Celebrate some buy you coups. some armor if you, you know, pour one out at the memorial site or something. I, but do uh, you think they like Reagan anymore? I don't know. Actually, yeah, yeah that's true. He's, too much, uh, he's a lib cuck for them. Yeah, he's a neo-lib cuck. I mean, the, I was shocked to see that the first Republican debate drew 13 million viewers and it was the most watched television program that wasn't a sporting event or something like this year. Like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was too, actually. Apparently, people are watching. Um, This one's Fox Business. Maybe Vivek the fake is better TV than we thought. Yeah, or maybe they all just thought Trump was going to be there and didn't (laughs) didn't notice for a while. But yeah, Trump's skipping this one too. But anyway, I'm excited to go up. Uh, We'll get some reaction on the ground just to see what it's like. Yeah. It's good to cover these things in person. And hopefully- Shoe leather reporting there. Lots of shoe leather. Uh, And hopefully I do not get my ass kicked. Okay. Let's start with uh, the now former chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Bob Menendez. So last week, Bob Menendez was charged with three counts of using his official office to do favors in exchange for bribes. That include uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash, gold bars, Ben, uh, a Mercedes. I think there were some mortgage payments for uh, Menendez and his wife. There's a couple different strands of corruption here, so I'll just try to lay them out quickly. Uh, Menendez allegedly called a senior official of the Department of Agriculture in an attempt to protect his friend's monopoly on imported halal meat to Egypt. That's part one. Part two, uh, Menendez is accused of pushing Biden to install a U.S. attorney in New Jersey that he thought he could control and then tried to interfere in the prosecution of an associate in exchange for cash. But the biggest piece of this from our perspective is that Menendez took bribes from an intermediary on behalf of the Egyptian government, the military and intel guys, I believe specifically, in exchange for helping increase U.S. military assistance to Egypt. Uh, Some of the things specifically that Menendez did include uh, passing along detailed information about the staffing of the U.S. Embassy in Cairo, like the number of U.S. or American staffers and local staff. Uh, Menendez apparently drafted a letter for the Egyptian government to use to send to his Senate colleagues to try to unblock aid, like to help them figure out the best 
arguments that all got routed through his uh, girlfriend then wife and then you know for listeners remember that Egypt is the second largest recipient of US military aid after Israel uh, and these alleged bribes to Mendez came at a time when aid to Egypt was held up over human rights concerns some listeners might be thinking Ben like what the hell can a random guy from New Jersey do to influence foreign military sales yeah the answer is a lot if uh, said guy is or, or woman is chairman or ranking member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, those folks can put a hold on foreign military sales. They can lean on the White House to do more. They can generally impact, you know, uh, personnel and policy. So, Ben, there's a lot to this one, but let's just sort of like take a beat and talk about what we just discussed. I mean, the allegations are part old school corruption, but like he's also acting as a foreign agent in some sense for the Egyptian government. Like, I I don't want to use the word treason. That's obviously like, that's not what this is. I saw some people saying that on Twitter, but it's like he is acting on behalf of a not all that friendly government, providing them non-public information. I mean, this is really bad. This is worse than just taking bribes to me. Yeah. And, and, you know, we'll get to the second part of that, which is Menendez's impact on, on foreign policy generally in Latin America policy particularly. Um, But starting on the Egypt piece of it, this is pretty astonishing stuff because, first of all, as you said, this is like not public information that he's providing. It's, you know, sensitive information in a lot of ways, right? The staffing of the embassy, for instance. Um, But I think even more egregious is the role he's playing essentially as a lobbyist for the Egyptian government. What you described is what a lobbyist does. Yes. Here's how you write a letter to the senators to make it most likely that you get this funding released. You have to register under FARA. Yes. To do it, the Foreign Agent Registration Act. And what is particularly grotesque about this is that Bob Menendez consistently puts himself forward as this champion of democracy and human rights around the world, you know, and here he is helping a brutal dictatorship in Egypt that has tens of thousands of political prisoners that routinely has its funding scrutinized and held up by Congress because of its violations of human rights. And for example, turning the military on protesters and killing hundreds of people. Yeah. And so this guy is simultaneously mouthing words about human rights while literally helping a dictatorship lobby to maintain billions of dollars assistance despite human rights issues. And and that is both corrupt and it is also like the most cynical thing I can think about, you know, because it's what everybody thinks the United States is full of shit. You know, like, oh, we talk about these things, but then we like, you know, scratch the backs of these dictatorships. That's literally what he's doing and he's doing it for payment. So it's like everything in one scandal that is, is sucks about American foreign policy. You know, it's corrupted, it's hypocritical, it's cozy with dictators, like everything is in this one indictment of this guy. Um, and, and and look, the, what the, the, this will lead in the second part of the discussion, like everybody knows and has known for a long time that Bob Menendez is corrupt. You know, there's just been this top, why was he the chair of the Farm Relations Committee? You know, like that, the, wh- why was he allowed to have this kind of influence on American foreign policy, given that this guy, maybe people didn't know the extent of this Egypt thing, but I mean, he's- He was indicted in 2015. barely beat the rap in 2015. Yeah, look, I know, innocent, but like- <laughs> It's not exactly a secret in Washington that Bob Menendez plays pretty close to the sun on corruption issues. Yeah. And we should say, you know, Menendez denies these allegations. He says he won't resign. His defense is basically like, look, I was just doing what anyone would do for their constituents. That's what senators do all day, every day. You fight for businesses in your district or whatever. He suggested that this cash that was found is his own money that he took out of the bank and that he took out huge wads of cash because 
Um, he was scarred by his family's experience in Cuba, I guess, sort of pre-Castro. Wait a second, though. Time out on that one. That's what he said. His family never lived in Cuba under Castro. <laughs> like, like he's fucking full of shit. It's it's just like Rubio's story about the, and when you know th- th- this guy, General is, General Rubio. Sorry, yeah, yeah. Menendez's family left Cuba before the revolution. So when he says like we have the fear of communism in our family and we need, therefore I like having cash out, that's that's not true. He's making up a, a story. Like like I'm sorry. Like playing that card in this case doesn't make any sense. Well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he also suggested that he's just being targeted uh, because he's Latino, which also I, I've not seen any evidence of that. Well, so Ben, let's talk about the foreign policy implications that you, you hinted at. Last week, the Biden administration announced temporary protected status for nearly 500,000 Venezuelan migrants currently in the U.S. That means the people that entered the U.S. before July 31st, they can apply for work permits. Administration officials say that they extended TPS, I think, for 18 months in this case to these Venezuelans because the situation in, in Venezuela is deteriorating. I'm sure they're also worried that cities like New York are loudly complaining about the fact that they can't manage the influx of migrants. There's nowhere to house people. They can't feed them. They can't, they can't them work. Healthcare. Right. So, right. You can't work. Like, so this is a no brainer to me. Um, let people work if they're here, right? Let them make money or else, how else are they going to live? But, you know, as we've discussed on the show many times, you don't hear a lot of debate in Washington about how to alleviate the root causes of migration in places like Venezuela, including, you know, the causes like U.S. sanctions. Here's a clip from Congresswoman uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez talking about how U.S. sanctions have helped create the migration crisis on the southern border. If we are constantly engaging in foreign policy that drives people to our southern border, in this specific instance, uh, U.S. sanctions that were originally authored by Marco Rubio began and precipitated, certainly took a large part in the driving of populations to our southern border. Shortly after those sanctions, those broad-based sanctions... You're talking about Venezuela. Yes. Shortly after those broad-based sanctions were enacted, we started seeing uh, dramatic increases in these populations that were coming to our southern border. And so we have to address the root of these population movements and the migration crisis And we also have to address the domestic U.S. policy issues when it comes to immigration reform. So, Ben, she mentions Rubio. I mean, you could put Bob Menendez in the same bucket. He's he's hardline on Venezuela. He's super hawkish on Iran. He's super hawkish on Cuba. He opposed, you know, President Obama even visiting Cuba or, you know, extending any sort of uh, olive branch. But again, like good for AOC for talking about how sanctions are playing a role in driving the migration crisis. Yeah, no, really, really good for her to raise the visibility. This is a great issue for her to speak out on. And just so people understand how this works, Bob Menendez is the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So the reason he's had such a hugely outsized role in Latin America policy, mainly hardline policies towards uh, Venezuela and Cuba. So all these sanctions that have punished the people of those countries while doing nothing to bring about positive change, while driving hundreds of thousands of people to our borders in humanitarian crisis. He's able to do that because he's weaponized his chairmanship. And what do I mean by that? Uh, it was kind of, It's well known that if you touch Cuba, you're never going to get confirmed for any ambassadorship, any Senate confirmed position. Meaning right? if you have a, a not a hawkish position, if yeah. you're for dialogue. I, I'm, I don't want to name names, but there are people who just because they worked with me on that Cuba opening, even though they were just doing the policy of the administration at the time, like they have not been able to advance in their careers because Bob Menendez, it's very clear. Won't confirm them. That he won't confirm them, right? But even beyond that, I think the Biden administration has internalized 
Bob Menendez will actually mess with all of our confirmations if we change Cuba policy or Venezuela policy. Like he was willing to weaponize almost like Tommy Tuberville style. He'll just hold up all your ambassadors if he doesn't like what you do in Cuba. You know. And by the way, when he was uh, prosecuted in 2015 and then got off because of the hung jury, he literally gave a speech where he was like, to those people who hung with me, I'll remember you. And to those who didn't, I'll never forget you he either. Carries, He's like yeah, vindictive he, in public about it. He is famous for a grudge. And if, if, if I sound like it's personal for me, it is. Like, But it, it, I think it's also wrong what he does because he, like more than any senator that I encountered, certainly any Democrat that I encountered, he would carry these grudges and he would take things out on civil servants and he would, again, weaponize his position you know, it's make your argument, but you know he refuses to allow there to be alternative views. So, if you want to know why Latin America policy is so distorted and dumb, it's because it's been made in fear of this guy. Uh, and, and frankly, we benefited. He was booted from the chairmanship in when we did the Cuba opening because yes. he was under yeah. uh, you know a different pro- prosecution. So. Um, uh, like we had, uh, we would have done anyway, but it coincidentally, it was easier for us. Um, coincidentally, by the way, conspiracy theorist, I had no idea what the fucking prosecution of Bob Menendez was. But uh, th- that's the, that's the first point. This hopefully is an opportunity for the Biden people to say, okay, with, without this guy chairing this committee, now we can have a more rational approach that tries to end Venezuela's humanitarian crisis. Um, now we can have a different Cuba policy that stops punishing people and driving them to our borders. That's the opportunity that's opened up here. I will say just because I saw one thing when I came in here, Tommy, mm-hmm. on the broader migration issue, uh, I saw a uh, n- non-friend of the pod, Suella Braverman, give this speech at, at AEI. From uh, from the, the big the, Boris Johnson fan over in the British the, government. She's yeah. like the hard-ass anti-immigrant yeah. home secretary um, where she said, basically, we have to get rid of the, like the UN Convention on, on Refugees. Um, no, the problem is that we don't have any agreements like that, that that work. So it's a, the point is that Biden took the right step, but it's ad hoc. Everything around immigration in this country and in Europe are these kind of ad hoc responses to surges. So now the Venezuelans can work, but everybody else can't. It's it's a the right step, but it also kind of points out how broken this entire infrastructure is. Our own policies and the international policies here, and what we really need is an effort to fix those. Yeah, and I think so often these discussions politically get driven by these sort of narrow political considerations in Florida, yeah. right? Like we can't yeah. we can't uh, get rid of the embargo with Cuba because hardline Cubans will vote Republican. We can't, you know, try to take a different approach with Venezuela because the big Venezuelan community in Florida yeah. will oppose that. Listen, that's true, but at some point, I would like to manage those politics, take a different approach that might actually address the problem on the border. And if there are hardliners who oppose trying to make life better for Venezuelans so people want to stay in Venezuela, then you accuse them of exacerbating the border crisis, right? Like we got to go yeah. on offense here. Let's, I'm much more worried about the politics of immigration than I am yeah. people saying uh, that we need to keep the embargo going on Cuba. No, it's such a good point because it, it's both that kind of dumb DC mindset where at some point everybody decided that you had to be afraid of the right-wing politics in Florida on this. And that's outdated, first of all, because Florida is not really a swing state anymore. But also what that misses is it's the Republican strategy to create this chaos, to underfund asylum judges, to sanction places. They want to create migration crises so that they can then kind of blame government for failing to solve those crises. And if you prevent yourself from solving those crises because you're afraid to lift sanctions on Venezuela, 
well, you, you may think you're avoiding short-term political pain, but you're inviting much bigger medium and long-term pain. Like the best politics is actually to solve the problem. And often in foreign policy, that means taking a short-term hit in exchange for a medium and long-term outcome. And that's what I hope, really hope, we see on Latin America, because this policy is ripe to change on Cuba, on Venezuela, on a whole host of things, on drugs. Um, and maybe, maybe if Bob Menendez is out of the way, that'll become easier. I, I, I saw an NPR story the other day about three, I think, Nigerian men who stowed away on a, like a massive ship on the keel of the ship, right? So they're outdoor explosive elements on a constantly moving keel of a ship for 14 days because they were so desperate to get out of Nigeria and get to somewhere else. They ended up in Brazil. The point being, you're never going to talk people out of trying to leave yeah. countries when they are in desperate circumstances. No, this is why this- so true in Venezuela. Yeah. This, and this is why this Suella Braverman speech triggered me because there she's at AEI talking about you know using all means necessary to stop these boats in the English Channel. You're talking about- Killing innocent you know, people. Afghan families crossing the channel like in little boats and you're talking about like using all means necessary. Fix the problem. Do your job, you know? It's really frustrating. All these people that demagogue this issue while creating the issue through their own policies, it is like a terrible feedback. Yeah, so it's wretched people. Let's turn to Ukraine and Russian news then because there's lots of updates on that front. So last Friday, Ukraine carried out an attack on Russia's naval fleet. They struck a, uh, a key command and communication center in Crimea. That strike, uh, is a, they said, killed a guy named Viktor Sokolov, uh, the commander of Russia's Black Sea Fleet, along with 33 other officers. It's not clear if that's true because on Tuesday, the Russian Ministry of Defense put out a video that purported to show Sokolov alive. But, you know, we'll find out. I guess time will tell. Either way, the Ukrainians keep hammering uh, Russia's naval fleet. Um, in response, the Russians targeted an important grain facility in Odessa. They're continuing this sort of war on Ukraine's ability to feed the world. On the southern front of the war, Ukrainian troops have punched through Russia's defensive line, the Sorovkin line, which is this multi-layered defensive line constructed by the Russian forces to prevent Ukrainian advances. Now they're going to see if they can widen that breach, advance through it, uh, and build on it. The U.S. apparently has agreed at the end of last week when Zelensky was here to give Ukraine these long-range U.S. missiles called Atacams that they've wanted for a long time. It sounds like those will include cluster munitions on them, so another sort of example of that um, convention going away. The U.S. made M1 Abrams tanks are finally in Ukraine. Hopefully that'll help with this offensive, though, Ben, I heard a military expert say the other day that the uh, average lifespan of a tank in combat is usually less than two weeks before they are damaged or destroyed. So it just goes to the, the churn and why yeah. Ukrainians wanted 300 and we gave them 31 and they don't think that's enough. But, you know, some 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 limited progress again by the Ukrainian side, uh, you know, but unfortunately now these exhausted Ukrainian troops have to fight their way to the next set of mines, to the next set of fortified defenses, uh, and it's going to continue to be uh, a brutal slog. But, you know, anything else you sort of saw out there this week on that front? No, I mean, I think that's right. The, 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 there are these three lines of Russian defenses, right? And it's just a slog, clearly, to get through them. And that suggests more likely than not, like some version of a stalemate for, for a while. Um, I, I did, the attack on, on the Russian naval, uh, you, you know, that's characteristic of a couple of things. One, the Ukrainians hitting Crimea more. Um, mm -hmm. And two, this kind of almost like targeted assassination. You know, they, they seemed like they were going after this guy. Um, like we said, that's them trying to reach beyond that front line because they're they're in, unable to make a lot of progress there and try to kind of change the trajectory of the war that way. One thing I did just note, Tommy, is that 
Elon Musk had apparently denied Starlink access to Ukraine because he thought that if they attacked the Russian fleet, it would start like World War III. And mm-hmm. uh, Elon Musk's escalation risk analysis. Not quite spot on. Not quite spot on because no. they're, they're hitting all the same stuff anyway. Yeah. And there's not nuclear weapons being used in response. So that that is notable. Yeah. Um, and in case we all need a reminder of the fact that Vladimir Putin is not just brutalizing the Ukrainians, but he's brutalizing a lot of his own people. Uh, an opposition leader and activist named Vladimir Karamurza has reportedly been transferred to a maximum security prison in Siberia. He got sentenced to 25 years in prison for denouncing the Russian invasion. This is a another you know sort of brave activist who was again poisoned twice, uh, yeah. once in 2015 and once in 2017. I met that guy like. Uh, and he'd recently been poisoned. Uh, you know, he he also wrote for the Washington Post. So, I mean, actually, this is like the, you know, Khashoggi, mm-hmm. uh, our buddy Jason resigned before that. The Post yep. has had some people, just a reminder, this guy wasn't a conventional journalist, but just the dangers that some people are facing for things that would have been totally normal to be doing like 10 years yeah, ago. Yeah, just voicing your, yeah. your opinion. Uh, so I want to get to this DeSantis thing, Ben, because a while back, we covered allegations made by a former detainee at Guantanamo Bay prison uh, about Ron DeSantis. It's a guy named Mansour Adiafi. He alleged that DeSantis, while working as a junior officer in the military, he's a JAG at Gitmo, uh, was part of a group that force-fed him to break a hunger strike. The New York Times looked into these allegations and found no evidence to back up the claims. Instead, they were repeatedly told by people who worked with DeSantis or worked at Gitmo that this almost certainly did not happen because DeSantis was very junior and very inexperienced and you know a young lawyer wouldn't be anywhere near uh, a force feeding. That mean, doesn't mean that the force feedings did not happen. They very much did. And many other horrible things happened to these detainees. But DeSantis doesn't seem to have witnessed or participated in this process in any way. DeSantis did get, you know, sort of detailed to Gitmo for these like one to two week stints. His job was described as being equivalent to like a first year associate at a law firm, making copies, kind of menial stuff. But in the past, DeSantis has defended Gitmo. And, you know, I think when we covered this at the time, we played an interview he did with a Florida outlet where, you know, he suggested that this force feeding was just a way to combat like ongoing jihad by detainees. He talked about, you know, essentially their um, resistance to interrogation, et cetera, is like, you know, an affront to uh, him and not, you know, mistreatment of, of these detainees. But an important correction and clarification here. Yeah. And it's, you know, important to get those facts straight. Uh, at the same time, I think the, the real scandal here, um, which is, you know, kind of lost in American politics now is is that one Gitmo happened uh, and all this torture and force feeding and waterboarding happened? Two, that people like Ron DeSantis like continue to defend it as if it was like a good thing that happened. Yeah. And then three, that it's still open, you know, yeah. and and that we you know we're paying God knows how much money a year to keep like fifty people down there. So to me, it doesn't really <laughs> raise the big. But the the problem is that probably every Republican candidate would defend Gitmo. So it doesn't set send, descend as a part as uniquely sadistic uh, that he does so. You know. Yeah, that's true. Well, another big update. So last week we talked about these shocking allegations that were made by Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau that agents of the Indian government carried out an assassination of a Sikh separatist on Canadian soil, Canadian citizen. The Indian government angrily denied those accusations, but Canada also took a bunch of steps. They expelled the Indian intelligence operative who was living in Canada. The Indian government responded in kind. So we're now learning 
more about how the Canadians figured this out in the first place. They reportedly intercepted communications between Indian diplomats talking about the assassination. Uh, and as I think you sort of mentioned last week, Ben, the U.S. reportedly provided some intelligence to the Canadian government that helped them figure out what happened. It sounded like basically, you know, the Canadians informed us that or went public with this and the U.S. intelligence community looked probably back into a you know, yeah. big stack of intercepted yeah. communications, rifled through it and gave them stuff that was helpful. Jake Sullivan, President Biden's national security advisor, was asked about the U.S. response at a White House briefing. Here's a clip. I'm not going to get into the substance of private diplomatic conversations, but we are in constant contact with our Canadian counterparts. We are consulting with them closely. We support the efforts that they are undertaking in this investigation. And we have also been in touch with the Indian government as well. And I will leave it at that for today, only to say that I have seen in the press some efforts to try to drive a wedge between the United States and Canada on this issue. And I firmly reject the idea that there is a wedge between the U.S. and Canada. We have deep concerns about the allegations, and we would like to see this investigation carried forward and the perpetrators held to account. That is what the United States has stood for from the moment uh, this emerged in public, and we will continue to stand for that until this fully plays its way out. So Ben, curious, one, if you're seeing any wedges, and two, you know, like if this was a fight between Canada and China, I'm pretty sure what would happen next is the Chinese would find a way to punish Canada, like banning the import of Canadian canola oil, which is what they did in 2018 when there was a diplomatic fight. They banned it for three years, like a huge uh, economic hit to the Canadians. But I'm not sure what the Indian government's playbook is going to be. Like, where do you think this one goes? First of all, Jake is like better than anybody I know at saying the absolute road diplo speak, but making it sound kind of dramatic. You know, look, yeah. I cannot get into the substance of sensitive conversation. You know, there's just, just there's kind some, of a some constant. Uh, there's like a context. drama behind it. You know, um, it's a, that's a that's a praise uh, praise there. But look, I, I think it was what we talked about last week is that the U.S. had to know about this from the Five Eyes. From the, those are the five countries that have basically open book intelligence sharing: the U.S., Canada, the U.K., New Zealand, Australia, and so. What was kind of strange to me when it first popped, to get to your point about wedges, when it first came out, the U.S. was kind of very, it wasn't like a coordinated everybody go out together and say, right. we're really alarmed by this, and or the Canadians got first, and then the U.S. is ready with like a prepared statement that's like, you know, uh, we're deeply concerned about this. There was kind of a, like, a, we should let the investigation go its way, you know? And, and one of the reasons that I, I, like some other people, were like, well, that's an interesting formulation. Is, is precisely because the U.S. probably has a view about what happened here. You know, like, it'd be interesting if you are a member of Congress, for instance, in the intelligence community, I'd be asking, what is the U.S. intelligence assessment of whether this happened? You know, because I, I would guess, and I don't know, I really don't know this, but I would guess that the U.S., you know, has some X degree of confidence that X happened, you know? Especially um, if Indian diplomats were talking about the assassination in some sort of over way. Like, yeah. It doesn't leave a lot of room. It doesn't leave a lot of and, and And what was clearly like a professional hit. Like, yeah. we, as we, again, it wasn't like a guy got hit by a car. It was like a bunch of gunmen. Yeah, know? and the and videotape um, of the assassination have come out. It shows like this was like kind of military style. Yeah, it was like a contract style hit, right? So, however, I will say, I think Jake did a lot of good work in that clip to clean this up, you know, uh, or clean up. They may not have thought there was a, they may not have intended that, but, you know, it just felt like they, they didn't want to be leading with with that. You know, as you and I have talked about, and this is 
no disrespect in the world to the wonderful role of NSC spokesperson. But sometimes when like the quote is in the name of the NSC spokesperson, you know, it's not in the name of the president or secretary of state. Right. Or it's seen as advisor. lesser than. It's yeah, usually because it was. Yeah, and 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 so. I think when Jake, though, comes out and basically says, no, there's no wedge, we're with them, we want to get to the bottom of it, I think that that is exactly the right answer. Yeah. Um, it, you could just tell that they weren't looking for this fight with the Indians. Um, and maybe that's the message they wanted to send, you know, that we're going to end up being with the Canadians, but we're going to show that we aren't, like, thrilled that this is happening. Now, where can they help is in terms of what's happening next. So in terms of punishment, the question you asked, you know, India's already indicated they're going to, like, not allow visas for Canadians to visit India, which, you know, both undermines business, but it's kind of mean because uh, I'm sure there's a large Indian diaspora there that, mm-hmm. you know, is, so I, I would hope that the role the U.S. can play is I understand that the U.S. is probably not going to beat, you know, Modi over the head with this because they have all these other interests with them, but to quietly go to them and be like, don't do this, you know, like, let's figure out a way to, to reach some resolution here that doesn't involve you kind of punishing an ally of ours because you killed somebody there. You know, like hopefully that's the kind of quiet, intense diplomacy that can help the Canadians manage through this, you know? Well, I I do. I mean, I wonder if the U.S. will be forced to sanction individuals that we know are associated with this assassination under the Magnitsky Act or I don't know. I mean, it seems like I wonder if Congress will force our hand on any sense, too. They're really, I mean, Modi has a lot of support in Congress, too, but, like, there are other issues that are raised by this. So, for instance, like, I think we share intelligence with India, you know. Are there concerns about intelligence sharing with an intelligence service that may have carried out a contract in Canada? You know, like, there are, these kinds of incidents raise all these questions, you know. And my sense is the administration's trade-offs are probably going to be towards not having a rift with India. Um, But hopefully that can at least include what Jake said, which is getting to the bottom of what happened, being clear about accountability and, you know, addressing this in some fashion. Our former mayor here in Los Angeles, Eric Garcetti, I think was pretty recently confirmed as yeah. the U.S. ambassador to India. That's a big job no matter what, but boy, it just got a lot more complicated. Yeah, a lot more complicated. Ben, unfortunately, it's been a tough couple of weeks for our friends in Canada. So last week, uh, they welcomed Ukrainian President uh, Volodymyr Zelensky to the Canadian parliament to deliver a speech. This was a, you know, broad effort to support Ukraine, right? Trudeau announced a bunch of additional money. They, they're going to send some armored vehicles to Ukraine. As part of the event in parliament, the speaker of the Canadian House of Commons, Anthony Rota, introduced a 98-year-old man from his district named Yaroslav Hunka, uh, who the speaker described as a Ukrainian hero, a Canadian hero. Here's a clip of that. We have here in the chamber today, Ukrainian Canadians, Ukrainian Canadian world veteran, from the Second World War who fought the Ukrainian independence against the Russians and continues to support the troops today, even at his age of 98. The speaker speaker has uh, acknowledged his mistake uh, and has apologized. Uh, But this is something that is deeply embarrassing to the Parliament of Canada and, by extension, to all Canadians. So that voice you heard at the end after the applause talking about the Speaker's mistake was Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, because it turns out that this gentleman, you heard them applauding, fought in a volunteer unit under the command of the Nazis. Uh, Shortly before we started recording, uh, the Speaker resigned. Ben, where do you think applauding a former member of the SS-14th Waffen Division 
before a speech by a Jewish president ranks uh, on the list of the worst vetting mistakes in political history. I mean, that's that's immediately vaulting up to the top three. Uh, when you say fought in World War II against the Russians, how do you not know immediately it's someone who fought with the Nazis? I just, yeah, wh what was the vet on this guy? Because it didn't take long for a lot of people to figure this out, right? I mean, like instantaneous. Because this guy was like not shy about the fact that he'd been in this unit. There are other guys in that unit that ended up in Canada. So, like, it's such a degree of incompetency. Did this person, was he set up by a staff member who wanted to, I mean, it's, it's li like literally a bunch of, like, mild-mannered, friendly Canadians standing up and, and giving a standing ovation to someone who was in the SS. It's like, that's fucking crazy. That's crazy. some crazy, crazy shit, you know? Wasn't there an instance where, I think, was it you or Favre? Somebody almost used a turn of phrase during yes. Obama's speech at the, uh, in Germany that was like a famous Nazi yes. slogan. So just to prove in some of you, I think maybe way back when I may have told this story, but just to prove that, that we could all be the Canadian speaker, right? Anybody who works in politics. Mistakes uh, happen. So when Obama went to Berlin in 2008, four years president, he was gonna address 250,000 Germans uh, in this huge moment outside. And we drafted, Favre and I wrote the speech together. I was a speechwriter traveling. So we, we had the end of the speech was this great story about the American candy bombers who dropped candy to ch children and during the Berlin airlift. And this German woman runs out in the street and yells in German like this word that means like we are a community of fate. Right. Actually, there's one word in German that means community <laughs> of fate. So we're like, oh, course, that's yeah. great. That's so Obama. Like we are the ones we've been waiting for, you know, all that. So that was the big ending was on this line. And he was going to say it in German. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, isn't that one word really mean community fate? So I Google this word and it, sure enough, that's what it means. But I see some Hitler references, you know, but at first I'm kind of like, well, you know, it's Germany. Maybe there's Hitler references. I call our Europe like policy lead guy. I'm going to dime him out now because we, we love him. But uh, it was Phil Gordon. Okay. Great, great dude. He's like, I know, I don't, that doesn't ring any bells with me. Um, I'm like, well, I'm going to call, we had an interpreter for the speech and, and, Advan great advanced staffer, Mark Levitt, remember that guy? Mm -hmm. Is with uh, that guy. And so I'm like, hey, does he have any concerns about this word? And the guy's like, oh my God, he's so glad you asked. He's been like worried about this. This word was like the theme of Hitler's first speech to the Reichstag. Oh my God. And I was like, well, will people know that? And he's like, well, German people know that. You know? <laughs> the, and, the ones listening And, and well. I was like, so I had to go upstairs and tell Obama like two hours before the speech that we had to change the whole ending because I almost put in this word that was basically like a Hitler theme. Hey, man, better than telling him two hours after the speech. Well, it's great that our boss, who was like smoking marble reds at the time, uh, which probably helped, um, but it's great that he his reaction was to laugh hysterically. You yeah. Know, like other bosses would yell. Uh, it's actually a great Obama story that he just, his instinct was to think that was funny, you know? Yeah. But it does show you that even Nazi uh, Nazis can avoid the vet, you know? Listen, man. Yeah. History is complicated. Words have a lot of meaning, um, intended or unintended. And you got to be real careful. Rough, rough week in Canada, though. I, I, I did. When I saw that, I was like, oh, they couldn't even get the clean Zelensky visit, you know, which yeah. otherwise is pretty cool. You know? Yeah, that's, uh, that's not good. Um, okay. Let's take a quick break. We come back. We are going to talk about uh, the Saudi Crown Prince's interview on Fox News. Hey. 
everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. All right, Ben, so Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman did a sit-down interview with Brett Baer of Fox News. That's a choice. Yep, it is a choice to go on Fox, <laughs> yeah. a very interesting one. So, I, look, I, I, haven't, I don't fully track MBS's interviews, but this was like the first sit-down I've seen him do with a Western outlet since his PR tour. The 60 Minutes the, thing, remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah through the yeah, United yeah. States in 2017. Yeah. That Pre-Kishobi. got him, yeah. yeah, this fawning, credulous coverage. And yeah, as you know, it made a lot of reporters look very stupid after yeah. MBS ordered the execution of Jamal Khashoggi in 2018. So I, I watched all of Brett's interview with uh, MBS. It wasn't 2017 Tom Friedman or 60 Minutes bad. He covered a lot of ground. He asked about Khashoggi. He asked about some human rights things. But you know, there was some bootlicking in there that was yeah. a little uncomfortable. But let's start with yeah. um, the biggest headline out of this interview when they talked about Iran. So here's MBS talking about what would happen if Iran got a nuclear weapon. That means you are in a war with the rest of the world. So it's a useless uh, uh, effort to reach a nuclear uh, weapon because you cannot use it. If you use it, you got to have a big fight with the rest of the world. If they get one, will you? If they get one, we have to get one for security reasons and for balancing power in the Middle East. But we don't want to see that. So when I heard that, and I, look, I could view that as kind of a threat or I could view it as a statement of facts and frankly something that you know, Obama said many times, which yeah. is if Iran got a nuclear weapon, it would start an arms race yeah, in the Middle yeah, East. Yeah. How, how did you receive that? I received it as a statement of fact. Um, I mean, first of all, like they, as always, you know, could have supported the Iran deal and then you wouldn't have to be having this conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so that's endlessly frustrating that the, he and Bibi, these guys that actively undermine the Iran deal, are now bitching that the Iranians are on the doorstep of a nuclear weapon that they wouldn't have been able to do. But um, I think it's just, look, we we used to make this argument, like if Iran get, gets one, the Saudis will and others. The Saudis could buy one, you know, if they, you know, like the, they have so much money, they, they could figure out a way to buy it. I think the problematic, to use the 2023 term, uh, piece of it is that we're in the middle of this negotiation about giving them a peaceful nuclear program, right? And so that's on the table as part of this normalization deal. And for him to just announce, 
we might because it would still they're not like legally allowed to get a nuclear weapon just because Iran gets one. That may be what happens, but like that would be in violation of the non- nuclear nonproliferation treaty. That would be against international law. So for him to basically just say, yeah, like, you know, if, if this thing happens, it very well may happen. We're just going to immediately turn key and have a nuclear weapon. And oh, by the way, like that'd probably be easier if the U.S. builds me a large peaceful nuclear program. Right. That's why it's messed up. Like it, it just is him saying out loud yeah, it's not like this nuclear program might not just be about like peaceful nuclear power. It's yeah. a hedge, you know. Yeah, that 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 jumped out at me. I mean, the same interview they talk about this normalization deal yeah. a bunch, and you know, also Brett, you know, Brett Baer in the piece talks about MBS's efforts to make peace with the Iranians. The deals were brokered by the Chinese in a way that's like it's not fawning, but it's sort of like he's sort of praising him. But that other side of his mouth is always attacking Obama and the Iran deal. Funny, um, Brett Baer wasn't as fawning over our diplomacy with Iran. No, he was not. So just to give him shit for a minute. So uh, Brett starts the interview by saying, a lot of people described you as a visionary leader, including many of your own people. I'm like, oh my God. You later, uh, I think the next question many starts. Many people are saying. You really have become a big player on the world stage. Uh, when talking about normalization, he says, clearly you can see outside of the box on these deals. And then on Yemen, Ben, to his credit, Brett asks about the war in Yemen. But then he says, more than 150,000 people died in Yemen. It's been a big humanitarian crisis, but you all put in billions of dollars to help in that, and it doesn't get covered a lot. It's like, thank you for uh, sending some aid to manage the humanitarian catastrophe that the Saudis caused. Wonderful. Why not cover that more? That's so unbelievable because, yeah, like they completely created the humanitarian catastrophe. The billions they provided in humanitarian assistance is like change in the couch for the Saudis. And that also does, Tommy, doesn't that just sound like, you know, Brett Bear had to have multiple meetings with uh, like MBS's flax in order to secure this interview. 100%. And one of those flax, one of those like really smooth um, Saudi diplomat types is like, you know what doesn't get covered? The prince, the prince really make, wants to make sure that we are providing this humanitarian assistance into Yemen and no one ever talks about it. He'd really like to talk about it. 100%. You, know, like, you can totally, good work by that flack, by the way, because totally. you basically wrote Brett Bear's question. You know? Yeah, it's a 30-minute interview. Like the first part is kind of buttering him up. 17 minutes into discussion, he asks about Khashoggi, asks a follow-up, and then moves on. Though he does move on to whether or not the Saudis are going to lock up someone who tweeted something nasty about the government. One thing that really bothered me, Ben, is... Um, Brett Baer is like, could you work with Bibi Netanyahu? And MBS says, look, you know, like in Saudi Arabia, we don't interfere with who's running a country. We work with them. No pushback on that. No mention that MBS uh, took the president of Lebanon hostage <laughs> yeah, yeah, in 2017. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah like, <laughs> and made him resign. Like, removing governments. Yeah, yeah. I, um, one of the stranger episodes, too, by the way. Like, they, they took the prime minister of a country hostage. And they just, yeah. and they drafted a statement for him and <laughs> yeah, made him read yeah, it. It's yeah, crazy yeah, shit yeah. I've ever seen. Uh, Brett Baer asked MBS <laughs> about Biden's age. MBS is actually surprisingly complimentary. He does also ask about the Saudis investing in Jared Kushner's fund and whether it sends a bad message. He says, even if there wasn't a tit for tat, it's like he sort of like yeah. takes away the yeah. sort of worst outcome. Basically, MBS says he leave the money in there even if Trump becomes president. So worth watching, but um, pretty frustrating. Yeah, pretty frustrating. I mean, this guy has like just floated above accountability of any sort because of his money. And, you know, that's the message sent by uh, interviews like that. I mean, I do think part of what's going on here is, look, he clearly would prefer Trump coming back. Definitely. Precisely because everybody knows that, he can like say some nice things about Joe Biden and Fox News. And by the way, the reason they want to do the normalization deal now is because they think that they did the deal with Trump as president, it would not get through Congress because no Democrats would vote for it. So the the reason he's doing this is 
he wants to use Democratic votes under a Democratic president to, to muscle through his normalization package so he can have his nuclear program and security guarantee and then hug Trump, which is yet another reason I'd be skeptical of this deal if I was a Democrat. I'm real skeptical of this deal. Uh, a couple more quick things before we get to Ben's interview. So we haven't talked about Niger in a while. Um, folks remember the, the presidential guard in Niger staged a coup on July 26. They've been in control ever since the Democratic elected president has been sitting in uh, jail. The coup leaders told France right after it happened to get their ambassador and their 1,500 troops the hell out of the country. Initially, French President Emmanuel Macron refused, saying he would only take orders from Mohamed Bazoum, the democratically elected president. Uh, on Sunday, Macron changed his mind and he announced that France will recall its ambassador immediately and pull out all of their troops by the end of the year. France was leading this big counterterrorism coalition in the Sahel region of Africa from about 2013 to 2022. At its peak, it spanned multiple countries and there were about 5,000 soldiers there. They've been steadily driven out. Uh, this is sort of the latest step in that process. Now, I guess we'll just see what the US does. Yeah, I mean, I think this is the right call. <laughs> Not that the France had a lot of maneuvering room, but as we've talked about, they need to kind of reset this entire relationship they have with their former colonies in the Sahel region of Africa, because one after another, there's a coup that basically has like anti-French sentiment as a key part of it. And so just instead of kind of trying to stay there and figure something out, like just pulling out and be like, okay, we're kind of start this it's over. It's crazy that they yeah. were telling them to leave and they wouldn't do yeah, it. Yeah. I mean, you just, that was about right leave someone's do. country. Yeah. I think the U.S., like, I don't know. I mean, the U.S., um, they haven't said the same thing to us about getting out, you know. No, and um, I don't think we've called it a coup yet. Yeah, so I mean, personally, like I, I kind of feel like we should get out of there because you know we're kind of en enabling in some fashion like a pretty shitty situation, um, and, and there got to be other ways to manage like a terrorism threat from that part of the world. Feels like by 2023 we should be able to not have to be physically everywhere. I mean, this is part about dismantling forever war infrastructure, like it. Are you going to keep a drone base in Niger forever? I mean, I don't think so. So, you know, post-coup might be the time to pack it up. Yeah, it might be the time. Uh, so, Ben, uh, our former boss, Obama's first chief of staff, Rahm Emanuel, is now the U.S. ambassador to Japan. So we worked for Rahm. He was very super high-functioning, frenetic, not afraid to break some China, not afraid to drop an F-bomb or piss people off, make some enemies. Unabashed neo-lib, too. Unabashed neo-lib. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That reputation uh, made Rom's selection as an ambassador a little bit surprising to some people. <laughs> Especially to like an incredibly structured and polite kind of society. Well, right? you know, it's funny. I, I do think <laughs> part of that is part of the confusion. Some of it is an assumption that ambassadors are polished and diplomatic. Yeah, yeah. I do think sometimes countries want ambassadors that just are perceived as having power and access and like Rom certainly fits that bill. I don't know. Yeah. Either way, NBC News reported that the White House had to scold Rahm Emanuel for sending a bunch of tweets that taunted Chinese President Xi Jinping because they were worried they might undermine efforts to improve relations between the U.S. and China. So the White House denied uh, this happened on the record. Kurt Campbell, who was on the show a couple of weeks back, has this like glowing quote about yeah, Rahm. Yeah, you know, I bet. Probably dictated by Rahm. Probably, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I talked to some folks in the administration who said, you know, look, they're, they're doing their job and pushing back on a story that annoyed people. But they said they think Rom's doing a pretty good job, but he certainly seems to have pissed off some folks at the State Department, some professional diplomats. Yeah. So I don't know. Regardless, there is no doubt in my mind that if back in 2009, 
we were sitting in the White House and our ambassador to Japan started popping off on the Chinese yeah. president on Ron Twitter. Ron Manuel would have like- Ron would have ripped him yeah, a new asshole, yeah, him yeah. or her, right? So I guess my question to you is like, there has been this change in diplomacy starting, you know, sort of the Xi Jinping area, these sort of so-called wolf warrior diplomats who are lots of Chinese officials who talk shit on social media all day, every day for a living about the U.S. in particular. Do we think any of this really matters given that change or like, I, I don't know, how big a deal, how big of a concern would you have about Rom, you know, popping off about, you know, the missing Chinese foreign minister and defense minister on Twitter? I mean... It's first of all, it's just funny that Ram is an ambassador. Uh, uh, who, by the way, he had like the strangest. People are always like, you know, did he curse a lot? And, and yeah, the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. It, but it was always been the strangest way to be like, you know, get me the secretary of motherfucking agriculture. <laughs> and it's like, what? Why? Like, why is that guy a motherfucker? You know, like it was just kind of random cursing. You know, like. Yeah. Um, so I'm trying to picture that in Japan. Um, on the on the. The other thing about the Xi Jinping stuff is like Biden Biden goes to these like fundraisers and he'll be like, I wouldn't want to be Xi Jinping, that loser. Like, <laughs> like Biden is constantly like throwing haymakers That's at Xi true. Jinping. That's true. So maybe Rom kind of felt like he had the top cover in this race. Yeah, he's got talk points. As a general matter, I'm a supporter of diplomats and ambassadors and U.S. government officials sounding like normal human beings. Okay? Shitposting? I mean, it probably doesn't have to be through shitposting, but like, I'd really like, and I've said this, I'll say this publicly, I've said it privately to everybody, um, from Tony Blinken on down, like the the talking points, you know, that we we kind of live by in foreign policy, no human being sounds like that. No that human true. being says words like, today we reaffirmed and deepened the partnership, but, but blah, 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 you know, like it's not how human beings talk. So I'm actually, I am a fan of ambassadors and and people generally in the U.S. government sounding like human beings, and if that means they're going to throw a little shade at Xi Jinping from time to time, like I think that's fine. I I think you don't the wolf warrior stuff that the Chinese do. The reason I think that's too much is it it makes you kind of look weak. You know, it's, it's kind of crazed. It's like this deranged rants about America, and like it doesn't it, it, it like it sounds thin skinned. You know. Yeah, that's true. I. Yeah, I guess I'm with you. I just kind of find the whole thing funny. It's fun. I find the whole thing funny. I mean, just picture Crum like firing off like you know dunks on the Chinese foreign minister. Yeah, and like some poor assistant secretary of state for Asia waking yeah. up and reading it. And be uh, like, what the yeah. hell, man? Dan Crittenbrink, man, like one of the best guy, guys in the U.S. government. Just be like, yeah. this guy works for me. This guy works for my underlings, <laughs> underlings, underlings, and he's just like popping off. On Dan Crittenbrink, he was after you. Uh, he replaced Danny Russell. So he's the most like he's from Nebraska, wholesome, wonderful guy. So like Rom is probably like totally off his sensibilities in, in yeah. a number of ways. Rom in the State Department, it's an interesting culture fit. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. when they say. Uh, final story, Ben. Uh, a New Zealand couple was awarded $1,400 in compensation from the Singapore Airlines after they were forced to leave their premium seats and move to economy seats because they were seated next to a loud farting dog. Uh, this was a 13-hour flight from Paris to Singapore. According to People Magazine, my source here, the trouble began after the dinner service, as it often does. <laughs> the dog was a bulldog mix. Oh. Apparently the dog, it was like underneath the one the owner's seat, but it's sort of, I think, butt was kind of angled under the neighbor's seat. You know what happens next. Uh, so, you know, this couple fought and fought and fought for the money. 
Uh, they said they'll donate it to a New Zealand-based charity that matches visually impaired people with service dogs. So all's well that ends well. I have questions there. Did the dog eat the dinner? Is that the assumption that, the, that the dog had like the Singapore air? Like, because it's actually a good dinner on Singapore air. They have good food. But maybe the, if the dog's eating like some spicy noodles or something, that's not going to be good. Yeah, if you're giving him some sort of like heavily sauced microwave yeah. chicken, that's not what you want. That'll do it. Um, did you see? Uh, I'm sure you did. The diarrhea plane. Oh God! Yeah. yeah, I mean, did I ever? It's kind of because it, it kind of this calls it to mind because I imagine if this dog it, like ate the microwave chicken dinner, it wasn't just the people sitting right there that are going to be impacted by what this dog was doing. I mean, th- 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 these New Zealanders were like on the front lines, but there's some <laughs> fucking people right behind them probably didn't appreciate. Yeah, they're in the yeah. trenches. Yeah. Um, it's thir- like snakes on a plane or something. Thirteen-hour flight. I mean, how's it? The dog supposed to hold it that time? That whole time? That's a really long flight for a for an animal. Ah, that's a very good question. Like, what do you do with like animals on thirteen hour flights? I mean, so I've taken my dog on six or seven hour flights, even when she was a puppy, and we brought like pee pads and try to get her to go okay. in the bathroom. Sometimes she would, sometimes she would. I mean, they can hold it a shockingly long time, but thirteen hours Ooh. is a lot. Yeah, God, that's a lot. Now, when we uh, we got Luca, we we flew with her couple weeks after we got her so she's like 10 or 12 weeks and we were um sitting southwest and basically like someone saw me on the in the window seat hannah in the middle and then like an open aisle seat next to like you know hannah's small so you have a yeah, some, yeah. you're not fighting yeah. for the armrest yeah and this younger woman comes and sits and sits down and then she sees that we have our little like 12 week old puppy on a on the tray table just like racked out sleeping yeah, yeah. Like the best day of her life she's yeah. got a pet her the whole time no farting though. I yeah th- that uh that's a good seat. You get to be next to Hannah and and a puppy. Yeah, you get lots of arm room. It's a lot of happy time. But um yeah, so I guess no thirteen hour flights. Uh, just don't feed the dogs the people food on the flights. I think is the that's that's what we can take away from this. That's what we can okay. take away from we, this. Okay, we we learned we learned from this. Okay, we are gonna take a quick break. When we come back, you will hear Ben's interview uh, about what's going on in Nagorno Karabakh. So stick around for that. everyone it's ted from consumer cellular the guy in the orange sweater and this is your wake-up call if you're paying too much for wireless service you don't have to keep having that nightmare consumer cellular has the same fast reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less and for a limited time new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code month free by may 31st so why keep spending more than you have to seriously wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit consumercellular.com taxes fees and other third-party charges will apply see website for additional details you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Okay, we are very pleased to welcome back to Pod Save the World, uh, Alicia Vartanyan, uh, who is a senior analyst uh, for the South Caucasus at the International Crisis Group. Um, uh, we've had Alicia on in the past to talk about uh, the situation in Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, as we talked about at the beginning of the show, um, we had a significant deterioration there with Azerbaijan seizing control of the disputed Nagorno-Karabakh region, leading to thousands, if not tens of thousands of ethnic Armenians uh, fleeing their homes, uh, literally, uh, to, to try to reach Armenia's borders. Um, and so uh, she's here to help us uh, understand what's happening and uh, where things might be going now. So thanks so much for, for joining us today. Oh, I'm so happy to join you, but I wish we could have a different reason for to have this conversation. I know, I know, so do I. And um, it's just kind of been a heartbreaking turn of events. I mean, uh, to, to begin with, Describe for our listeners what has just happened, you know, and why, why, from your understanding, did this just happen now? So in other words, this has been a disputed territory for so long. Why does it seem like Azerbaijan has now made its move to kind of swallow up this region and, and displace, if not ethnically cleanse, all of these people? It was uh, mid of the day, um, September 19, uh, when Azerbaijan started a military operation in Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, it took them very little, uh, almost like it was a matter of hours uh, for the Azerbaijani troops to destroy what uh, the locals, the local Armenians call their own army. Um, and then to, and they took control of the main roads that are connecting Stepanakert, which is the main town in Uzanklaiv, uh, with uh, the rest of the um, region. Um, the capital, the main town, got encircled um, by the Azerbaijani troops. The local authorities right away, almost immediately, started calling for the ceasefire. Um, and it took uh, most of the time uh, of this uh, military operation that lasted for officially for one day. Uh, but in fact, I mean, everything was uh, more or less uh, done uh, within a couple of hours. But uh, most of the time it went only for the local authorities and the Azerbaijani government to basically decide how to proceed with a ceasefire, because Azerbaijan was asking not just the, for the dismantlement, I mean, of the local uh, military troops, but also they wanted to see that the local government basically announcing that uh, they don't exist anymore. But then there was a question, who would be <laughs> responsible, right? I mean, for implementation of the ceasefire statement. And so it took uh, with long, um, one day, uh, just because they were busy clarifying how to proceed uh, with the demands that Azerbaijan posed and the local authorities agreed to right away. Um, when the announcement came, um, when the de facto authorities said that the ceasefire was agreed, um, it led to enormous panic among the local population. Around 100,000 people, uh, they were on the ground. Uh, thousands were already displaced by the fighting that was taking place. 
But uh, I mean, right away, people just started walking uh, in all different directions, trying to find any kind of cover because they were all uh, afraid that the Azerbaijani troops know where to start entering their villages and towns, and that would lead um, to certain violence, tensions, massacres, and all of that. Many of these people, they were walking kilometers, including uh, very old people and and, and also mothers with kids, uh, just to find a cover at the bases and compounds of the Russian peacekeepers. So at some point, uh, uh, all these people, they found themselves in an open sky without any kind of food, without any kind of belongings, many without any kind of documents, and then with no clarity about the future. It took Azerbaijan about two days to agree to opening the road, the only road that uh, connects Nagorno-Karabakh with the region to Armenia. And the moment it happened, we started seeing rivers of cars. All the people started moving towards Armenia. And it is still going on. Azerbaijani bodyguards that are stationed at the border of Armenia, they are checking every single car. And because of that, people spend over a day just moving uh, along with road that normally should take a couple of hours. And the first people now are here in Armenia. Um, today, almost 50,000 people already got registered. I spoke to several people who I know very well. None of them registered. <laughs> so I would, I would probably expect uh, a bigger number. I mean, of those who is coming, many more are still on the move. Uh, they are packing. There are also people who are still looking for diesel or petrol or some leaves, some buses. Um, I have a feeling that uh, in the coming days, this region will become almost empty. Um, so maybe there will be some people who will decide to stay and this is their choice. But uh, the majority, um, they, they are they, they don't see their future in Nagorno-Karabakh anymore, unfortunately. So, I mean, that's a really astonishing and heartbreaking picture that you just painted. Part of what is so astonishing, I think, to some people is that this has been a kind of frozen conflict for, for decades with uh, you know, roughly 150,000 Armenians living in this space. When you step back and, and, and consider why, why did this happen so fast, you know, we saw President Aliyev of Azerbaijan with Erdogan the other day. Clearly, his deep relationship with Turkey and the military assistance he's gotten has improved their capabilities. The Russians have generally been in the corner of Armenia, and Russian peacekeepers were kind of relied upon to enforce this status quo uh, around Nagorno-Karabakh. Clearly, Russia has been distracted by the war in Ukraine. Or you just have a world in which, you know, big countries are doing this to smaller countries as Russia is doing in Ukraine. I mean, why do you think this happened now um, in a way that it hasn't happened for decades? Why was Azerbaijan both willing and able to do this so quickly? So, look, uh, the first change, it came in 2020, almost exactly three years ago. Uh, then Azerbaijan started with military operation. The world was busy with pandemic. The U.S. was having yeah. uh, elections. You know, Trump's administration, they did not really care about this part of the world altogether. And yeah, I mean, it took them six weeks. Uh, the Azerbaijani forces, they they captured most of the conflict zone, including parts of Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, Armenian army was absolutely destroyed. Um, it was uh, basically the locals that were left at the mercy of the Russian peacekeepers. And at that time, Moscow decided to 
to station them in Nagorno-Karabakh for at least five days. And everything was more or less okay, I should say. I mean, there were the people who were telling me that yeah, they don't like certain things, especially that the military troops are next door, you know, they can see them from their windows, that they don't feel safe about their kids. And um, I mean, Nagorno-Karabakh became much more isolated because uh, there were no more um, people like from outside world traveling there. Uh, some restrictions were imposed and all of that. But still, you know, life uh, went on. But the moment Russia started the invasion of Ukraine, everything started, I mean, it it all started changing on the ground and people felt it um, there right away. Azerbaijan could feel right away also very well, you know, that Russia would never really start opening the second front. They were busy in Ukraine. And yeah, then Azerbaijan started making use of its uh, military might. Uh, also, the fact that Russia is either distracted, doesn't want to get involved, or just kind of prefers not to see uh, what's happening, both with Nagorno-Karabakh, but also at the border uh, with Armenia and Azerbaijan. And there were many attempts, robust attempts, I should say, made by the European Union and also by the current administration of the United States. But uh, yeah, look, uh, we still reached this point when there was a it was necessary for Azerbaijan to go for some softer stance, you know, and probably concede on some of its positions when it comes to Nagorno-Karabakh. To so, for example, the United States and the Uni- and the European Union they were offering to launch the negotiations between Baku and Stepanakert, de facto authorities and Azerbaijani officials, on the future of enclave. So that they sit down and discuss how this reintegration starts happening. And then with the facto authorities agreed, they started developing their papers, you know, like position, agenda. And there were two attempts to make it happen. Uh, American officials were to take both de facto official and Azerbaijani representatives to Europe for a meeting. First time it was disrupted by the leaks to the Russian media. The second time we saw uh, Russian foreign ministry making all different offers to Azerbaijan that were much more attractive than what the U.S. was suggesting. To me, yeah. when it happened in July and uh, in, in June and July, it was clear that we were doomed for escalation. To be honest, yeah. it was just a matter of time or when it it was to happen. But still, you know, uh, all these people they spend their summer and going after with Azerbaijani Armenian officials. We had the most senior uh, people from Brussels and Washington, D.C. calling. And I understand that, for example, Secretary Blinken spoke to Aliyev and one of my sources at the administration uh, told me that even they even discussed the possibility of sanctions in case this military operation happens. European official who, who is involved in all of that uh, also confirmed that uh, President Aliyev personally promised not to go for this kind of military operation. And then they saw this happening when with UN uh, General Assembly, with annual thing was happening, when all these people were together in New York. It, it, uh, it, it was much more than anyone could expect. On the one hand, the, uh, the fighting that Everyone knew what it would bring, but on the other is also how it was done, you know, despite yeah. all the promises and the UNGA happening. 
Yeah, it's almost like they wanted people to 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 know to watch that that they didn't care that Azerbaijan is a stronger party now and they're going to do what they want. I mean, we so you paint a picture of pretty intense diplomatic activity. The Armenian uh, American community here is understandably upset, and 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 I think the mood is that you know they would have liked the U.S. to do more. They would have liked the U.S. to cut off any uh, military assistance to Azerbaijan earlier. They would have liked sanctions. What what more do you think? history is over, but this is still an ongoing situation. Azerbaijan is still threatening um, maybe even further encroachments into Armenia. What what do you think the United States uh, can and should be doing now to support Armenia uh, as it deals with not only these people coming in, but continued threats from Azerbaijan? Look, Azerbaijan is not very easy to work with. It's not like, a, you know, Washington DC call them and then they in Azerbaijan right away start doing, you know, yeah. the thing. So, <laughs> I mean, you have to to work with them, and and uh, I, you know, I I perfectly understand all these people who are so much frustrated. Um, the administrator of the USAID, Samantha Power, she is now in in Armenia, and, and she constantly has to respond to these very questions. You promised us that there would that with the red line. You told us that you would respond. Where is your help? We don't need your money. We need why why didn't you help us? And then uh, people are very much frustrated uh, with uh, the fact that Russian peacekeepers just <laughs> packed and left. You know all their observation yeah. points. And they are now the only force on the ground and there is no prospect for changing them or even adding anything. So you really have to look at the situation and uh, and then think about like some sober approach and stance there. And I would say that the biggest and the most important priority now, oh, I know that people will not like what I'm going to say, but it's still for Armenian Azerbaijan to proceed with the peace talks. Um, there are two very important things for them still to discuss. It's one is the delimitation of the border and the second is the transportation roads. Both of them, they have to do with uh, security of Armenia. If Azerbaijan now says no to the US and EU mediation on these two important points, Armenia is left with only choice to go for these discussions with the Russian mediation. And then Russia does not really keep its back. And even more on some of these issues, we know that Russia supports Azerbaijan position. And so in a way, you know, this is kind of a situation when, yeah, this is a bad choice, but you have to think uh, about some worse things to, that, that can happen if, if you don't go for that. And this is because, just so people know, uh, essentially there there's a part of Azerbaijan that is still... Um, cut off right by Armenian territory, and so the the worst case scenario would be Azerbaijan taking more of uh, Armenia's territory in order to create a kind of land bridge, um, which uh, is eerily familiar to Ukraine. So yes, this is still still very much not over. Um, so you're in in Yerevan. Um, what is the mood there? I mean, you know, I've I've been struck by the, there's both the the sense of loss of. Uh, of this territory that, you know, really intense war was fought over um, uh, at the end of the Soviet Union. Obviously, the the the, the ethnic Armenians and Christians in that territory, um, you know, basically being ethnically cleansed. But also, you have the historical memory of genocide in Armenians. It feels like it's makes this kind of trauma even more intense. Um, and the sense of insecurity, as you said, it's just surrounded by these countries that seem hostile to its interests. I mean, what, what is the mood in, in Yerevan right now? 
I think many people are lost because it was very fast and right away, you now see uh, with people, uh, people are, I mean, the locals, they are sorry about what, what happened. But at the same time, I don't see any, uh, anyone who wants uh, to get into the fighting, you know. I mean, there are those who are criticizing, for example, the Armenian leadership for their decision not to interfere into the fighting. I mean, people like me understand very well that uh, it would be a very... Yeah short fight even for Armenia itself, yeah. just because it doesn't really have an army and it doesn't have a backing of Russia. It's a kind of formal military ally. Uh, so it's uh, uh, it was not something that Armenia could afford at all. Um, but there were some protests. Um, and then, to be honest, I mean, when I went to see with protests, I could not really feel that they were something that could... Uh, bring a major change. Uh, it can change in case of uh, with humanitarian crisis that Armenia might face just because uh, it now has to find uh, housing and integrate a huge number of people who are different, who speak a different language. They are Armenians, but they are not local Armenians. It's, uh, it's uh, still a very difficult task. And the second also, if, for example, some new escalation incidents start taking place at the border, that's also something that uh, will undermine the Armenian leadership. And look, the winter is coming. Russia is the one that is providing natural gas to Armenia. Russia is the one that provides also uh, the market. And when we know very well, you know, when there are some political problems, right away there can be some issues with, for example, um, some explosions on the on the pipeline, or there can be problems with uh, some, I don't know, uh, quality of some of the Armenian products that are to enter the Russian market. So, I mean, it's uh, it's okay for the moment. It's more or less stable. Um, people are watching. Um, they are sorry, but uh, what is to come? I think everyone is really very afraid of uh, of with next weeks and and then months that are to come. Yeah, I bet. Uh... But, it, you know, I think you really appropriately reminded us that this isn't over yet. You know, the, there's going to need to be a lot of assistance to the, for those 150,000 people, assuming that's how many people come. We're talking about a country, Armenia, of less than 3 million people. So that's an enormous influx. There's a risk of continued conflict. Um, the, the, the need for U.S. And, and European assistance remains very high, even if the frustration with how Nagorno-Karabakh has played out um, is understandable. The last thing I just wanted to ask you, are the, uh, what have you heard about this explosion at, um, that took place um, at, at like a fuel depot uh, where people are fleeing? It just seems to, d- does that feel like uh, a natural, like a, an accident or does do, do people feel like, you know, this is further um, efforts to sabotage and and, and kind of humiliate and or punish Armenians on the way out? You know, um, I spoke to some people um, who who told me, uh, I mean, who are still on the ground, uh, who told me that uh, they don't really have a reason to believe that that was uh, something that was prepared uh, by someone. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I probably have to explain that uh, Nagorno-Karabakh has been uh, living with this blockade uh, from a imposed by Azerbaijan for over nine months by the time of the military operation. There were very huge problems with the food, uh, but also not only, but also 
petrol, diesel. And uh, when people saw that the road was open between Nagorno-Karabakh and Armenia, then right away you could see them running around the town and then uh, in a search of this, uh, you know, yeah. petrol that either Russian peacekeepers delivered or some said Azerbaijan delivered. No one cared. It, it was uh, unfortunate. Uh, it was a very unfortunate incident. Even yeah. people were in a rush and they were trying to get uh, petrol and diesel just to get out of Nagorno-Karabakh because they are so much terrified. I I don't know, I spoke to some people, you know, who have been packing yesterday and uh, the feeling that I have is that uh, they don't really have a hope that they will go back. Um, Like, for example, one woman, uh, she was uh, burning, um, she packed uh, like uh, some of her belongings, not much, but still, I mean, she was burning like family photos and she kept the door open just because uh, she thought that those who were to come and to live at her apartment, uh, they should probably enter, um, you know, a nice place. I heard that some others also telling me that they were cleaning their houses because, you know, there is this uh, kind of uh, feeling saying that if you are abandoning your house, the new uh, host should come to the clean place. Um, it it all sounds uh, terrible. And uh, but. Also for those who not just now have to start a new life, uh, but also just because in this military operation, uh, many also lost their sons and husbands. Um, the majority uh, of those uh, who died, uh, they were military, but these were military who were also at the same time local, local residents. And, uh, and then there are still those who are trying to find the corpses and the remains of uh, of their beloved ones, and then still kind of, you know, trying to keep with petrol and diesel next to them. And of course, with uh, with explosion, it was like an additional tragedy just because, um, yeah, people were trying to flee and suddenly this happened and uh, you got like almost 300 people um, injured, uh, some of them really very badly and uh, over 20 killed. So it's um, it's like an additional thing when you absolutely lose any kind of hope for a better future, I'm afraid. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Well, look, we we really appreciate you coming on and helping us understand what's happening there. Everybody should follow the International Crisis Group's work. Uh, is usually the very best uh, analysis of these kind of conflict zones. And uh, people should follow you, Alicia, on social media. We'll point people in that direction. Um, So thanks so much and and, uh, best of luck to you. Thank you. Thanks again to Alessia Vartignan for joining the show. Uh, No thank you to Mac Jones or their guy, Zach. No, um, I will say thank you to uh, friend of the pod, Andy Kim. Oh, yeah, he might run. his hat in the ring uh, against Menendez. So So this is hard. Well, to, you know. Everyone loves Andy Kim. I'm excited for him to run. I bet it's going to be a crowded primary and people get real pissed off in Democratic primaries. (laughs) As we all learned in 2020. So we'll see. But I I, I do hope that Menendez resigns Uh, and someone can replace him. Yeah, that would be... uh, I'm not holding my breath on that one, but we'll see. That guy... Like, I just want to be clear. As I said on Pod to America, uh, I thought that guy sucked before... It was cool. Yeah, <laughs> so did I. I have a long record. We have a pretty good track record. I mean, if you've been listening, from the, let's say you picked this show up in 18, you would have known how much we thought Jared Kushner sucked, mm-hmm. Bibi Netanyahu sucked, mm-hmm. MBS sucked, mm. 
uh, Bob Menendez. I feel like we've basically been proven. We may not be right about all of our prescriptions for things, but I think our antenna for who sucks the most is pretty pretty spot on. I think that's right. Yes. I do think all of those people would be pleased to be bucketed together. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's fair. That's true. Um, they, they, they all like get the last laugh somehow. Yeah. Uh, listen, great show. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening, and talk to you next week. Yeah. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. Our executive producers are me, Tommy Vitor, Ben Rhodes, and Reed Cherlin. Our producer is Alona Minkowski, and associate producer is Ashley Mizuo. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick, audio support by Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis. Our studio technician is David Tolls. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn and Phoebe Bradford, who upload our episodes and videos to youtube.com slash podsavetheworld. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25.